Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is a special episode, and it's titled, Dear Son, We Will Never Meet. And I'm your host, Rick Stone. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this preview of No Home for Heroes on your YouTube or audio burst, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. As a special Father's Day production, We're going to tell today's story in the first-person perspective of a Marine on his way to a battle from which he will not return. Just weeks before he is declared missing in action, a new baby is born to a loving wife waiting patiently for his return or the return of her Marine husband. We hope we're able to capture the style of how our hero might have told his own story to the son he never met if only given the chance. All of us here at the Foundation want to dedicate this episode to our own fathers. The older we get, the smarter and wiser you have become in our eyes. We miss you and think of you every day. And now, on with our show. Today's episode is from case number 0381 in the investigative case files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. And... We're going to be respectful, but we're going to assume some literary license from a hero Marine to speak directly to the son he never met. Hopefully, our own words will capture the kind of facts and details that a father would want his son to know if he were not around to tell his son his own story. You sure don't want to miss this one because we're going to attempt to craft a narrative that tells the story of one of history's military mysteries and what could have been a lost hero's voice in his own words. Stay tuned for today's very interesting and intriguing perspective on No Home for Heroes. Dear son, we will never meet, but this is my chance to tell you some things about me that you will have questions about as you grow older. I was born in Joliet, Illinois on 19 March 1921. My family and friends knew me as Don, or Donald when I was in trouble, which really wasn't very often. My mom, Emily McPhee Cobus, died at age 45 in Joliet, Illinois on 13 May 1938. I was born Donald Stephen Cobus, And I only went through the 8th grade in school before dropping out. I hope you won't make the same mistake. In 1940, I was working as a mechanic and living with my father, Joseph Cobus, and my grandfather in Joliet, Illinois. My dad worked as a crane operator. The house I grew up in at 415 Blackhawk Street in Joliet is still there. I want you, son, to go by and check it out. It's a white frame house. Now it's enclosed by a chain link fence that wasn't there when the house was originally built in 1926. I was accepted into the United States Marine Corps in Joliet and was formally enlisted in Chicago on 17 July 1940. 
Like all new recruits, they gave me the rank of private. Naturally, my father was listed as my next of kin, and my enlistment was for a period of four years. Little did I know that I wouldn't make it until my enlistment term was up. At the time, I was kind of small, only 5 feet 7 inches tall, and I weighed about 140 pounds. I guess you could say I had medium brown hair. I had some blue eyes and a very kind of a ruddy complexion from being outside a lot. When I enlisted, the doc said my eyesight was a perfect 20-20. I certainly hope you inherited that trait. I listed my religious preference as Protestant, and the Marine Corps imprinted a P on my dog tags. They also listed a B on my tags to indicate my blood type in case I was wounded. Unfortunately, this information was not needed when my time came in battle. I didn't have any birthmarks, breaks, fractures, or tattoos, but I did have a two-inch scar on the back of my left hand and three one-inch scars on my right hand and forearm. I can't remember how I got those. I also can't remember what my cap or hat size was, but the hat the Marine Corps gave me looked like it was way too large for my close-cropped military haircut. I look, well, I think I took pretty good care of my teeth, and I want you to do the same. When I enlisted, I only had three cavities, and I had no teeth pulled, and I had all of my wisdom teeth. But I guess my smile showed that one bright gold crown on one of my upper front teeth. I completed my United States Marine Corps basic training at the Recruit Depot in San Diego, California. It was there that I received my first medal when I qualified as a marksman with the Springfield Model 1903 30-06 caliber bolt-action rifle on 6 September 1940. Never knew I could shoot, but the Marines taught me well. After graduating from basic training on 14 September 1940, I was assigned the G, Golf Company, 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, stationed in San Diego, California. On 11 December 1940, I was transferred to the 4th Tank Company, 2nd Marine Brigade at Camp Elliott in San Diego. My first promotion came pretty quick. I earned my one stripe as a private first class as a member of A Company, Alpha Company, 2nd Battalion, Tank Battalion. Thirty days later, I boarded the USS Fuller in San Diego Harbor for temporary duty attached to the 1st Battalion, 6 Marines, who were initially shipped to Newfoundland. But on 12 July 1941, we arrived at our final destination in Iceland. We were there to guard Iceland from possible invasion by the German army. Well, guess we scared the Nazis off because they never tried to take Iceland. I was rated as a 6th class specialist on 20 August 1941 and designated as an assistant tank driver. On 1 November, I received my 5th class specialist rating as a tank gunner. Between January and March 1942, the Marines pulled us out of Iceland and shipped us back to San Diego, California. By then, the Japs had attacked Pearl Harbor and we were needed back home to defend the West Coast against a possible Japanese invasion of the United States. Well, guess we scared the Japs off because they never tried to take California. I earned my second stripe and was promoted to corporal on 6 April 1942 and chosen to attend the Armored Force School at Fort Knox, Kentucky. After the school, I participated in the landing exercises with the United States Army along the California coast, while aboard the USS Harris, and also on board the USS J. Franklin Bell. During wartime, 
It didn't take long to earn my third stripe, and on 1 August 1942, I was promoted to sergeant. This promotion allowed me to marry your mom, the former Peggy Ann Laster. Recognize your mom's last name as your middle name? <laughs> well, we didn't have very much time living together, but we set up housekeeping in Los Angeles shortly before I was shipped to the South Pacific in preparation for action against the Japanese. Looking back, I guess it was just enough time to get you on your way to what I hope will be a great life. I can't quite remember the details, but I think my unit embarked aboard the USS Henry T. Allen in the French New Hebrides on 3 February 1943, and we sailed the next day to Wellington, New Zealand. We arrived there on 10 February 1943. My company was in New Zealand for a period of rest, refit, and training in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. On 19 April 1943, my specialist rating was changed from line duty to quartermaster duty only, mechanical. And on October, or correction, on 30 June 1943, I received my semi-annual professional and conduct record report, which was scored by my commanding officer on a 0 to 5 scale. I rated a 5 in military efficiency, a 5 in neatness and military bearing, a 5 for intelligence, a 5 for obedience, and a 5 for sobriety. And just so you'll know, son, this is an extremely rare set of perfect conduct ratings for all five categories. My buddies kidded me about being a 5-0 Marine. I earned a rocker under my three stripes when I was promoted to Staff Sergeant on 1 October 1943. Five days later, you were born thousands of miles away in Los Angeles, California. I think your mom tried very hard to get word to me telling me about your birth, but I was constantly on the move then, and telegrams and letters had a real hard time catching up to me. A week after you were born, I was transferred to A Company, that's Alpha Company, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion. I was quickly assigned to what was called the Samoan Group, which was a provisional company designated to train and operating and maintaining 50 brand shiny new landing vehicle track 2s, or known as LVT-2s. They were scheduled to arrive in the New Hebrides in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. On 14 October 1943, my Samoan group boarded the SS Robin Wintley, a transport ship in Wellington Harbor, for shipment to the New Hebrides to await the arrival of the new LVT-2s. And we were hoping to begin training with the craft prior to the arrival of the main Tarawa invasion force. We arrived in American Samoa on 20 October 1943, and about three weeks later, the majority of the Tarawa transport ships from New Zealand stopped at Afede, New Hebrides, for six days of amphibious landing training before we all set sail for Tarawa. I was assigned as the crew chief on one of the brand new LVT-2s. We were instructed that after we landed the first wave of assault marines, these vehicles were to carry any wounded who could be quickly loaded back to the transport ships for medical treatment, and then return to the beach with other groups of assault marines and add to their supplies. I don't remember the specific LVT I was assigned to when the invasion began on the morning of 20 November 1943, but I do remember that I was in the second wave. In the first wave, the final 200 yards of the beach were the roughest. 
We watched where those LVTs approaching Red Beach 1 and Red Beach 2. The vehicles were hammered by well-aimed fire from heavy and light machine guns and 40-millimeter anti-boat guns. The Marines fired back, expending thousands of rounds from the 50-caliber machine guns mounted on each LVT and the two 30-caliber machine guns mounted near the rear of the vehicle. Those poor exposed gunners were easy targets, and dozens were cut down. Bullets were whizzing by like angry bees, and there were explosions everywhere around me. Twenty yards from the beach, my LVT was struck by a Japanese mortar round, and everything went dark. So, I guess we'll have to leave it to others to tell you what happened after that. Just so you'll know, son, I love you, and I'm very sorry we did not have a little life together. I hope you will grow up to be a fine man in a free country. Do good. The official description of the circumstances pertaining to Sergeant Cobus's loss is best described in the official commendation recommendation for the Bronze Star Medal. Citation For courageous and outstanding devotion to duty while serving with the 2nd Amphibian Tractor Battalion, 2nd Marine Division, during action against enemy Japanese forces on Tarawa, Gilbert Islands, on 20 November 1943. In the face of furious enemy fire, Staff Sergeant Cobus, a platoon maintenance chief, repaired three amphibious tractors which had been temporarily immobilized in the initial landing. With utter disregard for his own safety, he then stationed himself to operate his own tractor, carrying casualties off the beach and returning with troops until he was killed in action. Staff Sergeant Cove's heroic conduct served the eventual capture of the island, and his bravery and perseverance were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. Sergeant Cobus may have originally been nominated for a posthumous Silver Star Medal, but his award was slightly downgraded to the Bronze Star Medal. Foundation researchers have also uncovered two additional recorded statements pertaining to Sergeant Cobus's death. They were both by First Lieutenant Sidney C. Key, who was also assigned to the Samoan group. The first account is stated, quote, During 2004, Lieutenant Sidney Key stated that he landed to the right of where LVT-1, number 49, written as My Dolores, finally came to rest. He said that a Japanese mortar round hit them just as they reached the seawall. The mortar round had landed just in front of the LVT-2's cabin and blew a large hole in the tractor. The LVT-2's driver, Private Thomas Munn, was killed in his seat and one of the Marines inside the LVT-2 went over the side and was immediately killed by enemy fire. He was Sergeant Donald S. Covis, and his body can be seen floating face down in some of the Tarawa photographs. End quote. The second account attributed to Lieutenant Key is similar, but not exact. Quote, Lieutenant Key's LVT-2 was number 2-31, and he was in charge of 15 LVT-2s that landed on the second wave on Red Beach 3. In 2008, Lieutenant Key said he landed on Red Beach 3 with just small arms fire hitting his LVT. His LVT then went out to the transfer line and picked up another section of Marines heading to Red Beach 2. On his LVT radio, the chatter 
was that Red Beach 2 was a hot spot and they were directed to land on Red 3. He told the sergeant in his LBT about it. The sergeant, which may have been Sergeant Cobus, replied, My orders are for Red 2, and that's where you're taking us. As Lieutenant Key's LBT was within 20 yards of Red 2, it was hit by a Japanese mortar, which killed the driver, Sergeant Cobus, and several Marines in the cargo area. End quote. It's important to note that Lieutenant Key was wounded during the final landing and was evacuated to an offshore transport ship for treatment. He was subsequently not available after the battle to identify the body in the water that he stated was Staff Sergeant Cobus. Lieutenant Key also made his initial public identification of Staff Sergeant Cobus and his LBT-2 as the one in the photo over 60 years after the battle. So, as is always the question with MIAs, what happened to Sergeant Cobus after he was killed? Staff Sergeant Cobus is listed on his United States Marine Corps casualty card as missing in action on 20 November 1943. The casualty card does not list his wounds, does not list the cause of death. No burial location is listed other than a memorial grave. Sergeant Cobus's individual deceased personnel file states, Sergeant Donald S. Cobus died 20 November 1943 while participating in action against the enemy on Tarawa Atoll, Gilbert Islands. Remains not recovered. His service record book located by Foundation Researchers in his official military personnel file contains the same body not recovered notation. To date, 30 members of Alpha Company, 2nd Amphibious Tractor Battalion, 2nd Marines are listed as killed in action. Eleven of those individuals, including Staff Sergeant Cobus, have never been recovered and identified. All eleven are in unresolved status to this day. In the final analysis, the preponderance of the evidence indicates that Staff Sergeant Donald Stephen Cobus was mortally wounded on Tarawa on the morning of 20 November 1943, after repeatedly landing Marines on the island from his assigned LVT. He was likely killed at or near the water's edge, and his body should have been recovered after the battle, even if it could not be identified due to decomposition or combat trauma. From that perspective alone, Staff Sergeant Cobus should be one of the unknowns previously buried in the Punchbowl Cemetery in Honolulu, Hawaii. In 2011, while a member of the Department of Defense, I began working on Sergeant Cobus's case. The biometric analysis tool I used, known as the Random Incident Statistical Correlation System, or RISC, determined that Sergeant Cobus was a most likely match to several unknowns recovered on Tarawa who were buried in the Punchbowl Cemetery in Honolulu, Hawaii. I knew we were working against time to recover and identify Sergeant Cobus and return him home to his family. His wife, Peggy Ann, never remarried, and she passed away in California on 12 December 1991 at age 68. The son he never met, Donald Laster Cobus, was also 68 when I first recommended to the Department of Defense that all of the Tarawa unknowns, and specifically those that were most likely matches to Sergeant Cobus, be disinterred and identified. Sadly, that was in 2011, and time ran out for the son he never met, when Donald Laster Covis, the son, died on 10 April 2018 in Stockton, California. So now, 
The Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation continues to work on Sergeant Covis's case, and we intend to continue to implore the Department of Defense to compare his family's DNA to the most likely matches that we have indicated. To date, the son never met awaits his father's return to a plot by his side in the Sacramento Valley National Cemetery in Dixon, California. When that happens, our representatives from the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation hope to be there. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Home for Heroes. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes. You can now subscribe to listen free on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. And a special thanks to iHeartRadio, who just added our episodes to their available playlist. Don't forget to tune in every Saturday when we will post a new episode of History's Military Mysteries Missing in Action. Episodes of No Home for Heroes are produced from the actual investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation, dedicated to providing information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. As always, we greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. Our next episode will feature a member of the Korean War's famous Frozen Chosen, who lost his life protecting an airfield so that his wounded buddies could be evacuated. You sure don't want to miss this one, because it will give you insight to what is today termed as the Forgotten War, but is now in the news almost every day. Tune in to hear it for yourself next week on No Home for Heroes. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that having heroes forgets them.